You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So I wrote a blog post after the van attack in Toronto, after another angry incel, the third by my count, went on a killing spree. And my blog post opened with an embedded tweet. Rachel Fagan tweeted, Sex worker women are not a separate class of women who exist to absorb the rage, anxiety, and sexualized violence of men so that other women are, quote-unquote, safe. They are also human women with the right to safety from violent men. And then this from me. I agree with Rachel Fagan, I wrote. I have friends who do sex work, women and men, and they are not human shields. Their lives are valuable, and they're not here to soak up male rage. They deserve safe working conditions, and they deserve our respect, not despite the work they do, but because of it. I continued, I have no sympathy for incels, involuntary celibates, lurking in dark corners of the internet, cheering on misogynistic violence. I have no sympathy for anyone who picks up a gun or gets in a van and mows down women on their way to class or work. So imagine my shock when I fired up the Twitter last night and read this. A number of people, including Dan Savage, have suggested sex workers as one way to head off anger in involuntary celibates. Yeah, no, not quite what I said. Actually, nowhere near what I said. I said the opposite, in fact. I don't know how you get from sex workers are not human shields, they're not here to soak up male rage, to Dan Savage thinks we should throw sex workers to the angry, raging incels. So let's try this again. I frequently hear from people who are, yeah, I, I don't want to use the term involuntarily celibate. I'm going to go with sexually and romantically deprived instead. I hear from these people. They're miserable. They wouldn't be writing me if they weren't. Men and women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and up who have never had sex or haven't had sex in decades. Some have never received so much as a kiss. And sexual and romantic deprivation it makes people miserable. It can make people suicidal. And as a society, we're usually fine with that. We tell people who can't get sex that sex and intimacy aren't like air or water. A person deprived of air isn't going to live for very long, but no one has ever dropped dead as a result of being deprived of sex or romance or intimacy. Women who are sexually and romantically deprived write me long, sad letters. But there are no examples out there of women picking up a gun and shooting good-looking men at a gym or a frat house. It's the toxic combination of male entitlement, men feeling entitled to women's bodies, the male propensity toward violence, and the misogyny that grows like a black mold all over the internet that creates self-identified incels. A quick aside, we keep hearing that killing net neutrality will end the internet as we know it. Considering some of what the internet has given us, the alt-right, the incel community, President Trump... Maybe ending the internet entirely wouldn't be such a bad thing. All right, getting back to it, I don't think throwing sex workers at violent, deranged incels will solve the violent, deranged incel problem. By the time a guy is incel identified, it's too late. Now our culture has to change in enormously profound ways to solve this problem and so many others. First and foremost, and again, and most importantly, men have to stop being socialized to believe they're entitled to women's bodies. The bodies of 
women who are strangers to them, the bodies of women who are their friends, the bodies of women who are their partners. And another cultural transformation that's long overdue and goes hand in hand with the notion that women own their own bodies, adults who do sex work of their own free will shouldn't be stigmatized or treated like criminals. And adults who hire adults who do sex work of their own free will shouldn't be stigmatized or treated like criminals or losers. We are capable of recognizing the legitimacy of sex work, even the moral good of it, in certain cases. When a mother hires a sex worker for her profoundly disabled son, newspapers publish stories with headlines like, The Sex Workers Giving Disabled People a Chance to Live Out Their Dreams. We get it. There are people out there who are so profoundly physically disabled and consequently isolated that their chances of finding sex or romance the way most of us do through dating apps or social circles, chance meetings are non-existent. We know this, and that's why a sex worker who sees clients who are profoundly physically disabled and profoundly isolated are just about the only sex workers a major newspaper will ever say a good word about. Well, there are men out there who are profoundly socially disabled, so socially awkward or maladapted or damaged that they're just as incapable of finding sex and or romance through quote-unquote normal channels as a quadriplegic confined to a bed in his mother's home. These guys sometimes find their way to hateful, misogynistic online incel forums where they're told it's not them. They're not the problem. Women are. Again, 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 and for the Twitter kids at the back of the room, I don't think sex workers can fix incels. By the time a guy is an incel, incel identified, it's too late. And I don't want sex workers I know or sex workers I don't know to be alone in rooms with angry incels or alone in rooms with men filled with rage because they quote-unquote had to pay for sex. Stigmatizing men who pay for sex as losers, running emasculating PSA campaigns like Real Men Don't Buy Girls, that makes it harder for men who may be profoundly socially disabled to access the sex and intimacy that they can, paid sex, without feeling even worse about themselves than they already do. One good way to destigmatize sex work, the rest of us, those of us who don't quote-unquote have to pay for sex, we could acknowledge that we all pretty much pay for it. We don't pay cash, but we pay. All sexual and romantic relationships involve an exchange. In most cases, the goods, sexual and or emotional, being exchanged for services, sexual and or emotional, are intangible or physical, and the exchange is of roughly equal value. It is a barter system, a system of exchange where goods and services are directly exchanged for other goods and services without using a medium of exchange, such as money. I give my husband emotional, social, and sexual support and attention in exchange for the same from him. If we weren't both paying in and paying up emotionally, socially, and sexually, our marriage would collapse. A sincere bond of affection keeps us paying up and paying in, but pay up and pay in we do. Destigmatizing sex work, again, for the Twitter kids at the back of the room, won't save us from incels or incels from themselves. An incel attack is almost always a suicide mission. But if we can manage to stop socializing men to believe they're entitled to women's bodies and to stop stigmatizing and prosecuting and persecuting sex workers and sex buyers, if we can stop telling men or women who have to pay for sex that they're losers or monsters or not real men and acknowledge instead that we are all paying for it, male entitlement will combine with sexual deprivation and explode.
Okay, coming up on today's show, Dr. Lori Brodo is on to talk about asexuality, and we speak with The Stranger's own Anthony Hecht about internet privacy. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm 23, live on the East Coast, uh, love your show. So I've been grappling with this thing for a little while now. I have a long-term boyfriend who's been dating about a year and a half now, um, and I've had relationships in the past. And I've just been finding that I definitely enjoy the orgasms that I give myself from masturbating, um, reading, and watching porn more than the ones that I get with my sexual partners. They do make me orgasm, um, but honestly, they're kind of small and they're not really great because for, you know, various different reasons, but I... Just wondering if it's, you know, normal, if there are other people out there, what you think about just loving the the pleasure I give myself more than that that I get with a partner. I kind of feel like it's tabooed or it's maybe not coach really to enjoy masturbation more than sex with a partner. And I really enjoy the sex I have with a partner, but I don't know. It just, it doesn't do it for me nearly as much as I I can do it for myself. So just wondering what your thoughts are. If anyone else has any ideas, let me know. Good news. You don't have to choose between sex with a partner and masturbation. You can, and it sounds like you do have both in your life and you appreciate both. You enjoy sex with your partners. The orgasms aren't as shattering as the ones that you can give yourself when you're alone watching porn, but sex with a partner, masturbation, you don't have to choose. It's false choice. Have both. Enjoy both on their own merits and for their own qualities. And I'm sure there are things about partnered sex that are superior to things about masturbation, even if in, when you find when you masturbate that the orgasms all by themselves, judged solely on quality and strength and intensity of climax, are better. That said, what are you doing differently when you masturbate than you're doing when you have partnered sex? Could be that when you're reading or watching porn, you are relaxing, you're taking a great deal of time, you're going at your own pace, you're drawing it out, you're edging yourself. If you edge yourself for a very long time because you're reading some really hot, dirty story, or watching a really hot porn oh, or a bunch of porn clips that just hit you in that spot, the strength and quality of your orgasm after 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 90 minutes of edging yourself is going to be more intense. If during partnered sex, you're moving at someone else's pace, at his pace, and you're not getting that long, drawn-out, edged feeling, yeah, that orgasm isn't going to be as intense and may never be as intense if you don't start using your words, there's something that you do alone that works so well for you. There's nothing that you do alone that you can't also do with a partner so long as you're willing to open up to them about the pace you need to go at, the amount of stimulation that you need, the, the porn or dirty talk in place of dirty reading that you need to incorporate into partnered sex to really get all your cylinders firing at the intensity they fire when you take your time and you're alone. But again, that's not required. You can do all that work with your partner. You can bring them along into your pace and your intensity and the amount of edging and drawing out that you need to have those shattering orgasms. Or you can enjoy partnered sex on its merits and enjoy those 
lesser orgasms as still orgasms, and then really take your time and lean into those more powerful orgasms that you solo can give yourself. Once again, good news. You can have both. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay man living on the West Coast in a liberal city. So I've recently made some new friends in the city, and most of them are very like sex positive and open about their different relationships, and some of them are even sex work, and I'm very supportive of all of this, and I like talking with them about this. But the thing that I'm having issues with now is that I'm still a virgin. I haven't really been in any sort of real relationship just because of issues coming out and anxieties uh, tied to that. And by the way, I'm working with a therapist on this now, so that's not what this call is about. What I am having a problem with now is that this group of like very sex positive friends, when we're talking, like they still kind of make fun of virgins and virginity in their conversations and sexual and experience, just kind of like casually, which I get, but I've kind of wanted to broach the subject maybe, or like talk to some of them about it just because like, it does kind of feel like I'm closeted again by not saying anything sometimes. And it's got like, it got particularly bad this week because some of them were talking about like uh, how they lost their virginity and just sort of swapping stories. And I had to get really withdrawn and just try to avoid anyone asking me about this because I didn't really want, to talk about it, especially because they were kind of making fun of the idea of still being inexperienced at our age. So I guess what I'm wondering is like, is there a way to broach the idea of me being a virgin still or talk to them without it being like as awkward as I'm imagining? Is this something that I kind of should keep under wraps until like, I finally have a relationship where this happens? I'm just not entirely sure what to do. Sex positivity is about respecting and honoring and celebrating people's choices and their experiences or their lack of experience or the choice not to be sexual. Sex positivity doesn't mean everybody has to do kink, polyamory, vanilla sex at all or has to do it on your pace. It's about people feeling empowered to be who they are and embrace who they are and be open about who they are without judgment or shame. So your friends that you described as sex positive – aren't being very sex positive if they're engaged in a lot of virgin bashing. It's understandable why people sometimes go in for that kind of trash talk. Virginity is exalted in the culture. People who are sexually active are subjected to slut shaming and sex shaming and kink shaming or open relationship shaming. And sometimes that gets people's hackles up and they're defensive and they'll say stupid things. Not out of malice, but just out of trying to put the thumb on the psychic scales and not make themselves feel better about being sexual, but to tear down the totem, the, the, the golden calf that was used to oppress them when virginity was exalted and is exalted still in the culture. It's like gay people who come out and then have a lot of silly, shitty things to say about straight people because they're defensive and they kind of have a right to be defensive because gay people come in for a lot of grief and violence and some gay people when they first come out and it sounds like your friend group is young so they're recently out sex positive people some gay people when they first come out spend a little bit of time pouring a little bit of psychic thumb on the scales corrective scorn on what they were bullied into feeling like they had to be or they were damaged because they weren't all that said use your words open your mouth say to your friends Look, I am a virgin. When you guys slag off virgins, it hurts my feelings. It's all you got to do. If you say it once and these people are not assholes, they will be pierced by this revelation. 
And once you say that you're a virgin, once you say that out loud, and it's nothing to be ashamed of, like I always say about so many things, you are telling them one thing about you. Their reaction tells you everything you need to know about them. If you tell them you're a virgin and they mock you or they continue to shame you or they continue to thoughtlessly slag off people who are sexually inexperienced by choice or lack of opportunity or whatever, they're not sex positive and they're not your friends. And you should get the fuck away from them and go make better sex positive friends. If they are as progressive and thoughtful and hopefully self-critical as progressive and thoughtful people tend to be, as you would hope any group of sex positive people are, you will get the love and support from your friends that you need and that you have a right to once you let your friends know who you are. So tell them. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You can be sex positive and a virgin at the same time. You can't be virgin negative or virgin shaming and sex positive. Hi, Dan. I'm hoping you can weigh in on whether I'm staying married and staying sane, one of your phrases, or whether I'm just being a cheating asshole. Um, I've been married for 10 years with my husband for um, a little over 15. We have two children in elementary school. Um, I'm in my mid-30s. I've been unhappy for a few years, but manageably so. Then this summer, my husband told me he didn't love me, and he thought he'd never truly love me. In that confession, something clicked for both of us, I think. He realized how good he has it, being a full-time student and a stay-at-home parent whom I support, and I realized that I no longer want to be married to him. Over the past seven months, I've started to explore the reality of a divorce, even seeking the advice of both a lawyer and a financial advisor. If we divorce now, not only would I be taking on the cost of childcare for my children while I'm at work and a second home for my unemployed husband, but I'll also likely be paying some sort of spousal support for the foreseeable future. For right now, staying married makes the most financial sense. My husband is clear that he wants to stay married, but he's unwilling to go to either couples or individual therapy. I started weekly therapy the week after his confession. In the interim, I've found a compassionate partner. This man is in a similar situation with his wife. We've become friends first, but we have met. We have had sex. He's incredible. I have no plans to leave my husband for him, and he feels the same way. So what say you, Dan? Am I saving my marriage, or am I just a cheater? You aren't cheating your husband out of anything he wants or values, so you are not a cheater. Indeed, you're doing what you need to do to stay married and stay sane, and staying married right now is the right choice for you financially. It's the right choice for your husband. It's the right choice for your children. So do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. I don't think you need to go to your husband who's told you that he doesn't love you, never loved you, and isn't sexually attracted to you and disclose that you're sexually active with someone else. You might want to have a conversation with your husband outside of counseling. He doesn't want to go to couples counseling for whatever reason. Maybe he's afraid of being jumped on in couples counseling. But just have a conversation where you say, we are partners and parents. This is obviously for now a companionate marriage where there are no expectations around sex or intimacy. There needs to be affection and respect. We need to show that to our children. We can't have a high conflict marriage and a high conflict relationship and live together without damaging our children. So I respect you. I feel affection for you. We're going to make this work for however long we need to make this work. And we have no claim on each other emotionally or sexually going forward. But we are partners. We are parents. And for now, we are spouses. Just say that out loud so that if through some circumstance he finds out you've been 
having sex with someone else. He doesn't blow up at you or have grounds to scream and yell and pitch a fit because you never told him in advance. You know, he may be laying in wait for some evidence that you've wronged him to balance the scales in his head. He has done you this wrong, married you without loving you, without being attracted to you. And sometimes when people are sitting with that, this sense that they have wronged a partner, they are on the lookout for some wrong their partner did that they can put on the other end of the scales and then feel like it's even. And I think you should deprive him of that. I having a conversation about what your marriage is now. Partnership, about parenting, affection and respect, period. The end. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman. My husband has a fetish and I need advice. He likes watching women poop. I know this because I've stumbled upon a few videos on his laptop. It's not something he's ever talked about with me. He's never requested to watch me poop. Um, I've never brought it up because I figured if it doesn't involve me, why not let him have his weird quirk, whatever. Well, a couple days ago, I discovered a hidden camera in our bathroom right over the toilet. At first, I felt violated, and I thought, shouldn't I at least be glad he wants to watch me poop and not some other woman? Then I felt sad that he doesn't feel he can openly discuss this with me. Lots of emotions. I plan on sitting down with him and letting him know I discovered the camera. My question for you, have you known someone with this fetish? What does it mean? How should I talk to him without making him feel defensive? Um, I really do love him very much and don't want this to break up our marriage. We have two kids, but I can't live with a hidden camera in my bathroom. This is not okay. I know he violated my privacy. You know that he violated your privacy. My concern, and the one I would bring to him right away, is whether or not he had violated anyone else's privacy. You may be willing to give this a pass or retroactively approve of this or allow him at certain times to film you pooping when you're aware that you're being filmed and it's not an invasion of your privacy. But if he has done this to others, if other people have used the toilet in your house, if he has surreptitiously filmed other women pooping or placed cameras in other restrooms or toilets that he has access to and he gets caught, which is a thing that can happen. It's a thing that already did happen. You caught him. That's sex crime land. That's sex offender registry. That's prison. You need to tell him that you knew about the videos on his computer and you were willing to give it a pass and let it be his private thing. You found the hidden camera in the bathroom and it's no longer his private thing. You, he has involved you. He has violated you. We often, to sustain a long-term relationship, we are often put in the position of having to forgive a violation or a betrayal and a serious one. Multi-decade relationships typically don't get to be multi-decade relationships without at least one or two or a half a dozen apologies offered and accepted and forgiveness is granted for a violation or a betrayal and a serious one. So I am not, as I'm sure lots of listeners right now, I'm not going to tell you that you have to leave this guy. A lot of listeners right now are probably thinking that you have to go and that this is unforgivable. And knowing what I know about relationships and having done this for so long, what we regard as unforgivable is very deeply subjective. We look at something that was done to someone else and we say that is unforgivable. Something of similar seriousness or the, the, the exact same thing happens to us and we are able to forgive when it happens to us. So I am not telling you that you can't 
forgive him and get past this, but you need to strip the bark off him in this process that forgiveness is going to require an acid bath for him about what he's been doing, who else he's been doing this to, what risks he's run in pursuit of porn he prefers and the risk that he has placed you in, not just the violation, but the risk that he's placed you in and your family and your children in pursuit of this. Are there other cameras in other locations would be the first question I would ask him after I told him that I found the one in our bathroom. The videos that you found on his computer previously, where did he get those? Who are the women in them? Are they videos from the internet? There are, this is a thing. This is actually a kink. There are guys out there who want to watch women urinate or defecate into toilets or on other things, sometimes themselves. This is definitely a fetish, definitely a kink. There is porn out there that is produced to meet this need. It is possible that he innocently acquired those other videos. It is also possible that he planted other hidden cameras in other locations. And that is something that you have got to press him on. Because you need that information so you can make an informed choice about whether or not you're going to remain married to this man. Find a kink-positive couples counselor that isn't going to shame him. Nobody picks their kinks. What we pick, the choices we get to make and have to make and have to make responsibly and ethically is how we act on them. How we incorporate them into our sex lives in such a way that we don't violate our partners, violate anyone else, traumatize anyone else maliciously, needlessly. And that's what he did. He tra- this is traumatic. He has traumatized you needlessly because you already knew and you were willing to give this a pass and let it be his private thing. If he had disclosed this to you, even if he had expressed a desire to have some videos of you taking a crap at a time when you knew that you were being videoed taking a crap, you might have been able to allow for that in an ethical way, in a way that didn't, that wasn't a violation requiring bark stripping and acid bathing and forgiveness. The way he went about it, all wrong. He has some apologizing to do and some explaining to do. And after you have that apology and you're able to weigh whether you think it's sincere and after you have those explanations, if you have the information you need to make, again, an informed decision about whether you're going to stay married to this man, then you make up your mind. Hi, Dan. I'm ringing from Toronto. My question is about my boyfriend. He cheated on an ex-girlfriend about four years ago, and it's really affected his self-confidence and also his sex drive. We were in a relationship before this happened, so I know the previous him, and uh, he had a really amazing sex drive, and just, you know, he actually introduced me to the joy of sex, and we've gotten back together since that happened, and he's just really struggling with his libido, and our sex life is a bit infrequent, and it's coming between us. So I was wondering if you have any advice on, you know, how to help or how he doesn't even know what to do. Um, Another friend of mine was dating a guy and he couldn't get an erection every time they went to bed. And eventually it turns out that he'd cheated on on his girlfriend and the relationship had broken up. And ever since he couldn't get an erection with women. 
So it has me thinking that like a mistake can have by a cheater can have like a, like a real impact on them sexually. When I look on Google, there's just page after page after page of advice and analysis for people who have been cheated on, but there's nothing for people who've cheated and how to handle that in a, you know, positive way. And I feel like people make mistakes and it would be great if, if you know, he could he could move on from this mistake and, you know, our sex life would be improved or get better. I'm sorry, but I'm not buying it. If impotence and or erectile dysfunction were a consequence of philandering, of, of men cheating, and there was any evidence to back that up, we would hear about that 24 hours a day. Every in denial about what sex is, sex negative, therapist, monogamist, religious tradition would be waving the bloody cum rag around over their head constantly screaming at men who, when all things are equal, are no more likely to cheat than women are, screaming at men that cheating it risks your erections for the rest of your life. Have you ever touched anyone else other than the person that you're with and committed to as a serial monogamous committed to right now with your penis ever? Your penis will never get hard ever again. We would hear about this constantly. So what you have, what, you, what you've offered, and, and, and I don't doubt your sincerity. What you've offered us is two anecdotes. And my skeptical brain starts reverse engineering these explanations that these men have given you and your friend for their problems. And it seems like what the guy with ED is saying, rather than I have ED and that is an issue for me and sometimes I'm not going to be able to get hard and we won't be able to have PIV intercourse, but there's lots of other things that we can do sexually that are pleasurable. Rather than just own up to the ED, he created a story that makes his ED noble. Can't get hard because he's such a good and decent person that he feels terrible about this bad and indecent thing that he did. So it makes something tragic and noble out of something that's just erectile dysfunction, something that affects some men. And some men who've cheated, it affects. And some men who've never cheated, it affects. This is not related. There is no causal relationship between cheating and erectile dysfunction or impotence if there were. And I, and I just feel safe saying there's no relationship because if there were, we would hear about it 24 hours a day from the monogamists, from the Mormons, from the Catholic the Pope would never shut the fuck up about men's dicks. We would hear about it. The to the city in the world speech from Vatican on Easter would be about erections and nothing else. If there were a relationship here. So, your guys, your fellow that you're with, maybe he has a lower libido and maybe he feels ashamed of that because men are supposed to want sex constantly. Men are certainly supposed to want sex more often than their female partners. And rather than just cop to having a low libido and feeling defective, he tells you this story. And maybe he's made this false link. I was in this relationship. I cheated. It went south. I feel bad. And now I feel conflicted. 
ah, uh, and I don't feel in my own body and I don't feel worthy of a woman's attentions because I just feel so guilt wracked. Okay, well, that's a thing that can happen. He needs to get himself to a therapist and unpack that. A therapist who is sex positive and maybe not sex positive, sex realistic. Cheating happens. It's something that people do. Not all people who do it are terrible people who are forever disqualified from love or affection. And as Esther Perel says, the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage or the relationship. There are different ways we betray each other. It is possible to betray a partner with something other than your genitals. But he's not in good working order. If what he's telling you is I cheated and I'm destroyed and devastated and I can't function sexually with you the way I would like to or you have a right to a partner who functions. And what he's telling you is that I cheated and therefore I can't function sexually. I can't be the partner that you need me to be. Well, then he's not in good working order. He needs to get his ass to a therapist. He needs a counselor and an intervention and a therapist and not a girlfriend right now. And he has work to do to unpack the bullshit association he made between cheating and a, a right to his desires and a right to get a boner. But I think the likelier Occam's razor answer to this question isn't that these guys cheated and therefore they've destroyed their dicks forever. They have ED or they have low desire. And rather than own up to it or tell the truth, they're telling you and your friend a story that makes their problem seem noble and tragic and kicks into gear your nurture instinct. The shit that so many women struggle with, which is that men are broken-winged birds and women are in their lives to save and repair and fix them. No, people have to be in good working order when they come together. And women are not responsible for this old housing every man that they come across. He's not your fixer-upper. Tell him to get his shit together. Tell him to tell you the truth. And maybe the truth is... He's not your fixer-upper. And this may be just how he works. This may be his sexuality. He may need sex less than you do. How do you accommodate that? How do you roll with that? Whatever the reason might be for why he's experiencing low desire or just has a lower libido than you, how do you work together sexually? Your friend with the partner who can't get a hard-on reliably – how do they create a sex life together that isn't hard-on dependent every time they go to bed? Those are the fixes. The fix isn't please warn all men everywhere that if they cheat ever, they'll never get a boner again because that's just not true. Hey, Dan. I'm a teacher in South Carolina. Through some odd twists of fate, I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia for two years and then came back to South Carolina where I was before I moved out there. I'm a public school teacher. I've been a high school teacher until this year, and I now teach seventh grade. Long story short, one of the units in our textbook is called Guided by a Cause. So I thought, hey, what a great way to introduce you know, this unit by having basically like a menu of all the causes that people are advocating for out in society right now. And the kids have this basically web quest of like 40 odd sites. I included on there the It Gets Better project as well as Black Lives Matter and no one is illegal Vancouver, which is a Vancouver organization. And the district won't approve the websites for classroom use. Basically, I was told that seventh graders are, that this would not be an age appropriate conversation for them. My counter to that was they're already having these conversations. I hear them in the hallway and in my classroom all the time. And I have to correct, you know, racial 
mistakes and counter homophobic bullying and that kind of stuff, you know, already in my classroom. But my administration said that basically like it could cause more harm than good because kids will go bully each other in the hallways, even after I'm not monitoring the conversation. And then, you know, there might be community reaction. It's not sensitive to community norms because I live and teach, unfortunately, right now in one of the most conservative counties in one of the most conservative states in the United States. So I just wondered if any of your listeners out there have any advice for a public school teacher confronting this issue. I really don't know if I have any legal ground to stand on, especially in a right to work state. But in terms of, I don't know, legal resources or even just advice from other listeners who have taught about sensitive issues, I'd really appreciate it because I'm really frustrated. And at this point, I'm just kind of getting sick of the muzzle that's constantly put on public education. I'll toss this out there to listeners and see what advice they might have. My advice, if you didn't want to potentially lose your job over this, if you didn't want to go to the mattresses, if you didn't want to jam It Gets Better and Black Lives Matter into the curricula, curriculum uh, and bring in the ACLU when the school administration comes down on you, would be to include something in the study packet that encourages students to go find examples of other social justice movements that have uh, relevance, a presence th- that they're aware of, and then allow the kids to bring in Black Lives Matter, March for Our Lives, the It Gets Better Project, the Trevor Project, whatever. And then you can't censor the kids. If the kids want to have a conversation, if the kids want to do a report on, then it's not your fault. You can't be fired because the kids are aware and awake and alive and moving through the world and listening to the news and finding out about things on their own and bringing those things into the school and the classroom. That could be one workaround. If anybody out there listening has another suggestion, a better suggestion, other workarounds or advice on how to take a stand legally, uh, give us a call 206-302-2064 and leave some advice for this caller. Hey, Dan. 26-year-old here, I've noticed a trend in my dating life that I was hoping you could help me out with. Now, I've never had a problem getting girls to go out with me, finding sex partners. I'm getting laid. I'm happy with that. But for the girls that I'm interested in seeing a little more seriously that I see potentially a future with, I try harder. I'm more engaged more attentive, I'm, I think, more desirable, I'm happier when I'm around them, and I get rejected. Now, sometimes I'll date these girls just a handful of times. Sometimes it's, you know, a month or two, but it never really amounts to much, and I am rejected. And today, I'm being ghosted by this girl I went out with a couple weeks ago. I met her at a bar. We went out a few days later. It was all good. We had sex. I thought we had a really fun time. The last couple of weeks, I've been, you know, texting her, trying to like hang out with her, saying what's up. <laughs> and today, I asked her out, and sure enough, she has not responded, and I do not think she will be responding to me. And on the flip side, on the flip side, I should say that you know, with the girls that I'm not that into, who I don't see really going any further than say like a friends with benefits situation. I'm not as attentive, clearly not as into them, and they're much more into me, and they text me all the time, and, like, they want me more seriously, but it's like, I'm, I don't think I'm as desirable when I'm with these girls, because I'm not, I I make it pretty clear that I don't want anything more than, you know, maybe, like, a casual thing, 
but with the girls that I want, I get rejected. And it's very frustrating because it happens very often. Pretty much everybody, actually, everyone that I've dated that I want to see more seriously, I get rejected. So at this point, I'm just, I thought I could chalk it up to bad luck, but I'm clearly doing something wrong. I just wish I had never met this girl that's ghosting me right now. I wish I'd never come across her and I just like stayed home and jerked off because <laughs> it saved me the humiliation of being ghosted like this. I listened to your question a couple of times and I think I have the answer for you. It's right there in the call. Oh, is it? Slow your fucking roll, dude. What do you mean? You say that with girls that you're interested in, you step it up. You lavish attention yeah. on them and you, you try to communicate to them that you are really fucking interested, right? And these are girls you've only seen a handful of times because nothing so far where you were really interested lasted more than a few weeks or a month. And right. with girls that you could take or leave, they keep coming back at you. Exactly. With girls you treat with <laughs> a, a little bit of indifference or distance – they're pursuing you and, and it's not, I don't want to get into like pickup artist bullshit here about negging or, you know, pulling away from a woman so that she begins to chase you. It's just that. I right. Think, exactly. That's like what I'm thinking. It's like, right. No, no, you know, no, no, no. Like I'm not endorsing. Where, I am not endorsing yeah. that. I think though, that when you are interested in a woman, you're only in your twenties. The other thing you said at the end of the call, I think is totally true. This is dating. People ghost in each yeah. other. People are auditioning partners, people, straight people now, to their credit, they wise the fuck up. They're not settling down or getting married until they're in their late, late 20s or early 30s. That's why you hear mm -hmm. so much less these days about the midlife crisis. We used to hear about that all the time in literature and film because straight people didn't have a life before they settled down. And that we hear a lot less now about the midlife crisis because straight people now have a life before they settle down. They live before they marry True. and, True. you know, stop living. And, and, and so we don't have the midlife crisis lit film trope anymore to kick around and that's good yeah. all that said so this is dating like you're in your mid-20s you're into these women nobody wants to settle down yet and i think the you're spooking the women that you're interested in by coming on too strong i don't think you have to pick up artist bullshit perform indifference or negativity i just think you need to be a check on it's just yourself. hard for me i guess not to like Express interest, I guess. No, no, no. I guess I'm coming home to Express interest, <laughs> but you need a filter that lets about 30% of that expression of interest through instead of 100%, because the 100% that you're allowing through now is scaring women, it, it, is spooking them, yeah. because, because there's something about the way you're coming across that's, that's, that seems like you're demanding a premature commitment or you're prematurely attached or that your infatuation level is greater than theirs, and mm -hmm. there's spooked stop spooking the, the women that you're really interested in don't intentionally treat them badly but slow your fucking roll yeah yeah come on a little less strongly that's what you're doing you're coming on too strong and you're scaring people off that you're interested in and the women that you don't come on as strongly obviously you're an attractive dude you get plenty of pussy there are lots of women who are interested in you and when you don't come on as strong you don't scare them off but you only don't come on strong to the women that you're not that interested in. So now you need to like consciously make an effort not to come on as strong. You can still come on like semi strong to the women that you are interested in, maybe pursuing a commitment or a relationship with. You just got to right. be thoughtful and you've got right. to filter yourself.
Like one of the things yeah. I con- you listen to the show. One of the things I constantly talk about is that people and no one else talks about this. People are looking for partners with good judgment, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be with somebody who's not an idiot. And there's a lot of little subtle ways that people assess whether someone has good judgment and coming on too strong. Even if you're really into somebody, if they're coming on too strong right away, part of your subconscious mind goes, yeah, that's not what people do who have good judgment. Even people who feel really strongly about you, they're aware that that can spook someone early in a relationship. So they hold a little bit of that back and they they roll it out a little more slowly. And that's how you demonstrate one way that you can demonstrate good judgment. You know, even if you know, I'm with somebody and I'm kind of crazy about them and I get the sense that they're kind of crazy about me too, I don't want all the crazy dumped on me right away because that says True. I have no filter, I have no judgment. And we don't want to be with people with shitty judgment. So filter, 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 slow your roll, make an effort. Yeah, I'll, I'll dial it back. I'll dial it back. Yeah. Dial it all the right. fuck back. And I think you'll get much better results. Don't be a manipulative creep about it. Yeah. Right? Like, you can be sincere and, and truthful about how you're feeling. Just parcel it out. Roll it out a little slower. Set down breadcrumbs. Don't hawk hams at people. You know what I mean? That doesn't make any sense. I just pulled that out of my ass. I don't even know what that means. But... <laughs> I'll set down breadcrumbs, sure. Instead of chucking a ham at someone. Good luck. All right, thanks a lot. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question that I think might be on a lot of people's minds concerning internet privacy. Now that it's pretty clear that platforms like Facebook and others have been logging our texts and phone calls and are willing to share this data, what else might they have? Could they have our internet browser's search histories? If worse comes to worse, then these were somehow to be released, either through the efforts of this awful administration or through some other clandestine move by another party, what can we do to protect ourselves? As someone like many others who is responsible for maintaining a clean reputation for the sake of my professional life, I do not, repeat, do not want anyone knowing that every now and again in my private time, I like to look at pictures and videos of people, namely men, namely hairy, muscly men, doing naughty things. I especially don't want them knowing when I thought I was doing this privately, without the risk of anyone else knowing. I've already deleted the Facebook app from my phone, but maybe you have some more insight on steps we can take to protect ourselves. Well, I'd say one first thing you might consider is not calling into podcasts um, and asking such questions. <laughs> <laughs> because voice recognition software is a thing. Anthony Hacked, Chief thing. Technology Officer for Index Newspapers, my home paper, my uh, Death Star, my base. Uh, you are here to help tackle this question. I appreciate you making the time. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So f- does Facebook know what porn we're all looking at? Um, that's an interesting question. Probably not. You don't browse the internet through Facebook. Um Though Facebook does follow you around the internet. And so let me modify that answer. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you see a like button and anything, every website in the world has Facebook's code running on it. So if you're logged into Facebook, Facebook is – you're being followed around the internet by Facebook things for the purposes of advertising and all of that. Whether Facebook is storing a log of all the URLs you visit, you know, that's not a – bad assumption is that data that a hacker could make public somehow could that all be stolen from could whatever analytica sure um, find also, that and push it all out on the internet a la the ashley madison hack and out a bunch of people for being dirty perverts who like muscly hairy sweaty guys doing things to each other which as far as porn goes is pretty like low grade right um <laughs> there are a lot, a lot worse things people can watch online than just like muscly dudes with hair on them right and i think 
I mean, the answer, the short answer is yes, it is definitely possible. There's things to exist and everything you do on the internet is stored somewhere. So it could be hacked, right? Um, the Cambridge Analytical thing is a different story where they, they actually pulled data from Facebook. Facebook basically gave that data to them through their, because it was an app on Facebook. Um, Facebook. And that app didn't just allow people, didn't just scrape the data from the people who used that app and agreed when they used that app to have their data mined, but it also ended up mining the data of everybody who was friends with anybody who used that app. Right. The previous version, Facebook's previously, when you authorized, when you clicked, yes, this app can access my data, you were also saying, yes, it can access all my friends' data. They haven't been doing that for four, three or four years or something like that, so they say. Um, but the URL that that data that's being used by uh, other websites and those tracking pixels that's not part of what an app would receive as far as we know but that doesn't mean Facebook doesn't have this data somewhere so that's a hack is different than what happened with Cambridge Analytica but everything's hackable things so what's happen. your advice then everyone should return to porn magazines we should be <laughs> that's not a bad idea um, <laughs> vintage so, porn magazines because yeah, right. there aren't any actual porn <laughs> magazines anymore right um, I mean my advice is. It sucks because there isn't any easy way, right? There's no, oh, just do this and you're all fine, right? Your just ISP, use, uh, if you use Comcast, if you use CenturyLink, if you use whatever you use for your ISP at home, they know what websites you're visiting, right? Like they they have to, that you're connecting to the internet through their network. They know what websites you're visiting. That and could, if you look at porn at work, your employer can look Absolutely, at the right. sites that you visited. Absolutely. Whatever How often do you look at the sites I visit? Uh, you know, I, less and less often. Because <laughs> I only visit the same getting, ones over and over you, again. Yeah, you're getting repetitive. It's like, <laughs> just, just less surprises there as time goes on. Um, but yeah, your ISP knows who you're doing it. Uh, the browser, you know, when you type in your browser and it starts to autofill the website name, that's because they've stored where you've been before. Um, you can turn that off. That's what like private people use private mode, incognito mode. Different browsers have these things. But your ISP still knows where you go on incognito mode. Yes, incognito mode is really not private. Um, it's it's not saving your history in your browser. It's not. So there's no way to protect yourself. Well, you can use VPNs. Some people use VPNs. What's That's, a fucking VPN? So a VPN is, uh, stands for virtual private network. It basically. You can think of it as routing your internet traffic through some other server. So instead of my the website that I visit seeing that, oh, you're you're coming from this IP address that belongs to Comcast in Seattle, whatever, I could route my traffic through Sweden or Russia or any country in the world um, and then they'll just see this IP address, which is some random server in some other country. Is that difficult or complicated to do? No. It's, so these are services you can buy. There's like – One's called Private Internet Access, cleverly named. There's also, there's a million of them called Tunnel Bear, or other things like that. It's it? probably a little too late to start worrying about it, though. Like people yeah, who've been online for ten or fifteen years, you've left a digital footprint and trail. And maybe the safety isn't so much in using a VPN or one of these services. The safety is in that we're all in this together. Like we all have these things, and there, but for the grace of God, go I if somebody else is outed for their internet browsing and their porn taste. Everybody's watching so much fucking porn online. Everyone's implicated. Everyone's right. equally guilty. Right. I mean, we currently have a, you know, the, a scandal involving the president of the United States and a porn actress and nobody seems to really care. I think there is I some... Care. Uh, well, I mean, they, there's, there is something to be said for what you're saying, that this is... Nope. There's less shock around it anymore. Everybody seems to be... There's no more clutching of pearls that, oh, what's happening? Um, so I think that's... That is part of it. Uh, you can use a VPN. 
you're trusting some random company you've never heard of. Are those guys trustworthy? Are they run Is by the Russian secure? government or the Chinese government? Yeah. You know, like who the hell knows who they are, right? That's in some ways even more risky. Okay. Uh, Com- so I think it comes to incentives, right? Does that do does Comcast or Facebook, what do they they don't care. They they want you to use the internet, they want you to use their services. That's how they make money. Most people don't have to worry about their internet browsing history or their porn sites that they frequent landing on the front page of the New York Times. What most people are worried about when they talk about the sites they go to is a spouse finding it, an employer finding it. Is there an easy way to protect yourself from the snooping spouse or the snooping employer, even if you can't protect yourself from some enormous data breach or Facebook? Right. Um, So private mode is okay for that. It's not going to – that's – that will not protect you from your employer. Your employer, if they want to, could have logs of every website visited. Um, the way to protect yourself from your employer is not to do that at work, really. there's You could use a VPN, but then somebody's going to be like, why the hell are you using a VPN at work, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, unless you've been given that VPN for work purposes. At home, private mode, in the most simple case, yeah, if somebody opens your browser and they're not, they can't see the browsing history, it won't be in your browsing history, the cookies will be deleted, all of that. And it's um, good to – if you have a snooping partner who's an irrational dirtbag about mm-hmm. it, it's good to have a browsing history with nothing incriminating it. If you just clear your browsing history every time you get offline, mm-hmm. that looks like you're up to something and you don't want right. your partner to find out what it is. Right. There are brow- Firefox makes a, an entire browser. It's um, not for the desktop but for phones and tablets called Firefox Focus that is entirely built around this concept so it doesn't save anything – by default, so mm-hmm. you're not. You can use that browser. Your spouse probably will never check that browser because nobody's ever heard of it. Um, but you can use it, and then click a button that just says "Start Over," and it's like a brand new browser. But you know, honestly, there's one piece of advice: is you know, use someone else's computer. <laughs> <laughs> is that why you're always borrowing my computer to like update it? Yeah. And you know, you go to somebody's house for dinner. You know, like you gotta excuse yourself for a little while and. They've got computers everywhere. Why not pop into the bathroom and use their toothbrush too while you're at it? (laughs) But yeah, you know that I would say don't do it at work, at home, clearing your history. But as you say, you know, depends on your spouse. (laughs) Anthony Hack, Chief Technology Officer for Index Newspapers and the man who knows every porn site I've ever visited. (laughs) Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. I'm a 16-year-old heterosexual male and uh, I've got a girlfriend and we both definitely want to have sex. But her family is heavily religious, and her parents would lose it if they learned that she wanted to have sex. So she doesn't exactly have great access to birth control. So I was calling to see if there's any possible way that we can get birth control without her parents knowing, and if it's possible without being fairly expensive. You don't need a prescription to go buy condoms at age 16. You also don't need a prescription to buy emergency contraception, Plan B, which is available in the United States and Canada, I believe, over the counter and there's no age restriction to purchase it. You will not be asked to produce an ID to prove you're 16 or 18 or 21 or 39 to buy Plan B. So I would recommend if you two make the decision to become sexually active, belt and suspenders because – Condoms sometimes leak. Condoms sometimes break. Use a condom. And also, if you're concerned, if there's leakage, if there's breakage, have plan B at the ready. Don't store it at her house if she's the one with the crazy parents who will freak out if they discover that their daughter 
regards her body as her own and believes that she has a right to make her own choices and some sexual autonomy, don't store that shit at her house. Store it at your house, but have it on hand. Otherwise, condoms. Go to Planned Parenthood. Read the section of their website dedicated to condoms. They have a low failure rate when used correctly. They have a higher failure rate when used as most people use them. Average usage has a higher failure rate because people don't put them on correctly or they're not monitoring the condom during the sex and it can slip off or it can break and people can be unaware. It might help also if you want to be doubly, triply safe, belt suspenders and a staple gun to not ejaculate inside her, to use the condom, have intercourse. When you reach the point of orgasmic inevitability, when you're going to come, no matter what you do, pull the fuck out, come outside her body. Don't rip the condom off and blow a load all over her pussy because that could have unfortunate consequences too. Just pull out as you're coming so that the condom doesn't fill up with 16-year-old smuck and then leak around the edges. Good luck. Hi, I'm calling because I was hoping that you might be willing to discuss asexuality a little bit. I'm a bisexual woman uh, living in the Northeast, and I am getting involved in someone with someone that's asexual, and I'm a very <laughs> sexual person. So it seems like it's something that could work because he's a very open-minded person and, you know, not stuck in monogamy. But um, I wasn't sure if maybe I'm being unrealistic because I tend to be unrealistic when it comes to beautiful people. <laughs> so I was just wondering if maybe you could have a guest on to discuss asexuality a little bit or if maybe you could share your own knowledge of it. So I would love to hear more about your thoughts. You asked for an asexuality expert and I got you an asexuality guest expert, Dr. Lori Brodo, a psychologist and sex researcher at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, who has published numerous papers on asexuality. Hey, Dr. Brodo, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. So uh, zoom out before we get to the specifics of the caller's question uh, about asexuality generally. You you, you brought out a, a big paper on asexuality. Uh, a lot of people credit you and credit that paper with really driving home or nailing down that asexuality is a legitimate sexual orientation. Can you unpack that for us a little bit, what asexuality is and what your study showed? Yeah, so it's it's been defined in different ways over the years, but it can be largely understood to mean someone who lacks sexual attraction. Um, so that means they, in addition to not have any not having any sexual desire, they don't feel any even fleeting feelings of attraction towards anyone um, that uh, that would elicit any any feelings of wanting to have sex with them. And one of the things that um, we've studied over time is, you know, can this be explained by something else? Maybe it's that they're depressed or they have some kind of uh, mental disorder or other symptoms of psychological difficulty. And we really ruled that out in, in our research. And we've also ruled out that this is a sexual dysfunction. So it's not the same as the person who says, I have no desire, I have no libido, because that group tend to be bothered by it and they tend to want to seek treatments for it. Whereas the asexual person says, you know, I've always been this way um, and I'm, I'm quite happy with it. I wouldn't take a treatment even if there was something to make me feel sexual attraction. Which sounds kind of like gay people who say, I wouldn't take a pill that would make me straight. I'm perfectly fine and happy being gay. There are a lot of people out there who are asexual, though, who feel persecuted or oppressed because there is this expectation that everyone must be sexual. And they feel pressured to perform a sexuality or sexual desire that they don't experience. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, let's face it, we live in a, a hyper-sexualized society and there is this kind of um, underlying expectation that if you don't feel that desire, that there must be something inherently wrong with you or you're repressing it in some way or you're just flat out right lying. So for most people who've never heard of asexuality or never met an asexual person, this seems really quite bizarre. And, and uh, you know, and that's where I think some of the stereotypes and the, the assumptions come from. One of the things I think confuses people about asexuality is there are a lot of asexual people who want romantic relationships, want intimacy, want partnership. A lack of sexual attraction or desire doesn't always translate into a desire to be alone. And I think rarely translates into a desire to be alone. David Jay, who founded the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, very famously, is, is partnered, I believe, married, has a child. Uh, asexuality doesn't mean that you don't want a person to be your person. Right. And and so what we're talking about here relates to someone's romantic attraction. And, and that's separate from sexual attraction. So just like a person can either have a sexual attraction or not, someone can have a romantic attraction or not. And so among asexual people, um, there are some that want to be in a relationship, that want all of the same kind of, uh, you know, perks that come with being in a in a relationship, companionship and love and safety and communication and closeness and trust, et cetera. And then there are other asexuals who, you know, have no desire, no interest for any of that. And so they would define themselves as being an aromantic asexual. And then we get to the gray asexuals and also the fact that many asexuals are sexually active for, and I'm quoting the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, for reasons that don't have anything to do with sexual desire, but have something to do with the desire for connection, to meet a sexual partner's needs, to scratch an issue. There are sexually active asexual people, and I think that confuses a lot of people. Yeah, and and this uh, this is a question that we've studied in our research now in in you know hundreds of different uh, asexuals, and we've asked them this question in different ways, and we've even pressed them on this question: How can you define yourself as an asexual person if you still masturbate and and have that kind of sexual gratification? And they um, you know they they experience it, they describe it in really an uh, uh, in a non-sexual way. So as you said, as an itch that needs to be scratched, some talk about it as a way to relieve tension, as a way to change their mood, as a way to get to sleep. Um, and so it we can't equate masturbation activity um, in asexual per- people or in sexual people for that matter. There's been a separate research looking at why you know sexual people masturbate. So it's not the same as uh, as having a sexual attraction for for a person. Now, most people when they masturbate, there's something spooling through their head. They're flipping through. I call it the solo decks, mental images that you keep on hand just for yourself or memories, a little little film loop of the shit that you have done or would like to do, your fantasies. When you talk to asexual people who masturbate about masturbation, is there a tape loop playing in their head? Are there fantasies or the sexual fantasies or is it just a purely physical sensation and there's no link up with desire? Yeah, great question. And we've also studied that question in a few different studies, asking about it in different ways with a questionnaire, with some open-ended interviews. And, you know, essentially our, our question was, you know, how, how do you get aroused and how do you stay focused on the arousal and the masturbation without a fantasy? And if there is a fantasy there, what's the content of it? Is it a, is it a person? Is it a thing? 
Um, and what we found was, you know, a lot of diversity in um, in the kinds of fantasies that asexual people have. So first of all, uh, many of them have no uh, sexual fantasies whatsoever. So it's purely mechanical. There's focusing, you know, just on, you know, whether it's the penis or the clitoris or the vagina, what have you, just focusing on the sensations. But for those people who do, um, those asexual people who do engage in a fantasy, what we found is that the vast majority of them, it wasn't a fantasy of, you know, someone that they wanted to have sex with, because again, by definition, they don't want to have sex with anyone. So they might imagine a close-up of, you know, a penis. They might uh, have a scene of something that's completely not sexual whatsoever, but that might relax them. Like the so impeachment really of a- Donald J. Trump. <laughs> that, I might well, actually be able to that, masturbate but, uh, fantasizing about that. That might actually do it for me. Okay, that's going on our next questionnaire. Done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let, let's get to this caller. She's bi. She's yeah. described herself as very sexual. She's getting involved with a super hot guy, it sounds yeah. like, who mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. asexual. Can that work? Yeah, great question. And, you know, um, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions based on her call. So first of all, she said that he is open-minded. And although she hasn't really described what she means by that, I'm interpreting it to mean that he's open to the idea of being in a relationship with a sexual person um, and maybe even open to having sex, even though, again, by definition, he has no desire for said sex and, and for sexual attraction. Um, she asks, is she being unrealistic if she thinks um, that this is going to work? And, you know, I, I think she is being unrealistic if she thinks that this that this is going to be easy to navigate. It's not, um, you know, by definition, she's sexual and therefore expressing sex is is going to be a part of how she defines relationships as being more than, than just a friendship. Um, and for this asexual guy, he doesn't experience it that way. For him, there might be other metrics that define a quality and, and meaningful relationship for him. So um, that said, um, if they're prepared to communicate up front about this and, and before their relationship gets too serious, then they do have a chance at making this succeed. And I, I've seen a number of, of uh, folks just like this in my clinical practice. But, you know, you've got to face it. There's no halfway point between having sex and not having sex, right? There's no kind of half sex that they can compromise on. So they're going to have to decide whether she is open to foregoing sex and finding a sexual outlet elsewhere, either maybe through masturbation or other partners um, or a combination. So that, that, or, that wouldn't be foregoing sex. That would be foregoing sex with him if she was allowed to thanks, have other partners, yeah, which, yeah, is why, which is how I think him. this might yeah. be able to work. Yeah. Or there is another option, and that is that he is he agreeable to having sex with her for non-sexual reasons, right? So to make her happy, to you know keep the relationship going. Um, now, you get into some dicey territory with that second option. Mm. So it doesn't mean that he's having non-consensual sex. But it does mean he's going to have to grapple with having sex that he really doesn't want to have. Um, and, and, you know, in that way, it's, in that sense, it's not all that different from couples where one person has high desire and the other person has low desire, yet they keep having sex. So that's really the critical issue that they're going to have to talk through and figure through and maybe try out and then check in after some weeks or some months and ask themselves, is this working for us? And I, um, I actually think that, the, you know, I'm hopeful for this relationship because he's out about being asexual at the start. Mm-hmm. There are, yeah. I have heard from people who are sexual, who are in relationships with people who are asexual, 
who didn't disclose that or didn't know yeah. to disclose it because it wasn't until very recently that there was the concept of asexuality, any research about asexuality, the community that AVEN helped to create around the identity of asexuality. There's a lot of people out there who are asexual who didn't, couldn't, re- couldn't figure themselves out and only figured out who they were after they'd made a commitment and they were going through the sexual motions and it wasn't making them happy. And, and and that's kind of a tragic circumstance. I think it's an immoral circumstance when you misrepresent who you are, when you know you're asexual and you allow someone to assume that you're a sexual person because you want a romantic relationship and then the wheels come off because the sex doesn't work. And the other person might feel like there's something wrong with them. They don't understand what's going on in the relationship. So that sort of asexual sexual relationship I think is doomed. This kind of asexual sexual relationship this can work. He's told you. You're, it's opt-in. And there, you can have a, a conversation about accommodations and, and outside sex or masturbation or sex with each other where you're having it for different reasons. So long as it's not coercive and he's not having sex under duress just to keep you, which I think would make you feel miserable, caller, if that's how mm-hmm. you were mm-hmm. being sexual together. It was a hostage situation as far as he was concerned. And that didn't turn you on. Might turn some people on. Wouldn't turn you on. That won't work. But if there's accommodations and full disclosure and everything's above board and there's no misrepresentations or no faulty assumptions that are allowed to roll out, I'm very hopeful for this relationship. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Dan. I, I think that, you know, the prognosis, if you will, for, for this couple, if they have that kind of discussion, communication up front is, is actually really good. And, you know, contrast that with a lot of the couples I see where, you know, they think that this is a, a, a problem with their desire, with one person's desire. And those, so they seek countless treatments for that low desire, even though the, the person doesn't, doesn't necessarily want that. And then they discover at some point that, you know, this is actually, I'm, this is my orientation. I'm asexual. And there's tremendous relief for that person uh, who, who realizes that. But for the other person to now grapple with, oh, wow, this means that, you know, that nothing is going to work. It's just, it's not just that we haven't found the right treatment. There is no treatment for this. And so those couples, um, you know, the outcome for them tends to be that they, they don't stay together. Um, but I agree with this couple. I, I have good feelings for them. And if they keep their communication great and, and open and they check in with their arrangement and continue to check in with it, um, I, I think they'll do well. Dr. Laurie Brodo, psychologist and sex researcher at the UBC in Vancouver. What is the name of your big paper on asexuality and where can people find that? So it's called uh, Asexual Orientation and it's a review of the literature. It's published in Archives of Sexual Behavior in 2017 by uh, myself, Laurie Brodo, together with Morag Ewell. And before we let you go, you have a new book coming out, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, published in the next couple of weeks. Isn't that right? Yes, it's uh, published through Greystone, and it hit the shelves April 24th. And what is that about? So it's uh, it's about our research over the last uh, many years looking at mindfulness meditation as a way of cultivating sexual desire. And it summarizes a lot of the research that we've done that shows that when people practice mindfulness meditation, um, that it can have short-term, but even more importantly, long-term effects on helping people to get in touch with sexual desire and arousal again. Dr. Lori Brenner, thank you for jumping on the phone. Please come back uh, next couple weeks. We'll have you back to talk about the book and take some questions related to it. Will do. Thanks a lot, Dan. Hey, Dan and company. 20-something-year-old trans guy here. Here's my problem. My boyfriend's dick is very large and my vagina is very small. On top of this, I don't always tend fully. 
I used to have vaginismus, but I worked through it by using dildos and working on my body image issues. Anyhow, now I can usually take a seven and a half inch dick with a lot of warm up and lube, but it's not foolproof and I always end up sore. He's wonderful and patient about all this, and PIV isn't even our go-to sex act, but I like it very rough, and it sucks when I'm in the middle of a scene and I can't perform. It makes me feel inadequate, broken, and dysphoric. So what do I do when I can't tent? Get an extra wide cock ring? Seriously get into anal? Stop having PIV? I don't want to do that. There's got to be a fix. My first impulse was to say there is no fix, but actually you're already doing the fix where you have PIV when you're able to have PIV, when you're capable of, when it's working, you do it. But PIV isn't the only thing that you guys can do or enjoy doing. So it's in the mix and not always on the menu. And yeah, there are sometimes things people do sexually that leave them aching and sore afterwards. And people determine for themselves when the ache and the sore is worth the the sex that results in the ache and the sore. And that's not just about penetrative sex. There are people into hardcore S&M or spanking or whatever where there is going to be a lingering after effect from the sexual activity that can be unpleasant. And people ask themselves or they in the moment make a decision about whether the soreness is going to be welcome. If you're into hardcore caning or spanking that leaves broken skin and bruises, yeah, maybe not before you get on that 12-hour flight and coach. That won't be pleasant. But when you are spending the weekend away and you have a day and a half to recover, maybe then. People make those soreness benefit analyses all the time. And I think that's what you can do. And you shouldn't feel defective and you shouldn't feel broken. There are times when you're able to accommodate your partner's seven and a half inch dick and you go for it. And there are times when you're not able to accommodate his dick. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. That means that you're tapped into your body and how it works and what your body can take and when it can take it, then that's good. Not everybody's up for penetration all the time, anal or vaginal or oral or otherwise. We just need to ask ourselves, is this a time when I am? Is this a time when the lingering after effects, the you know battered throat if you're into deep throating and the soreness is worth it? Or is this a time when I'm going to give it a pass and we're going to do and enjoy something else? Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 25-year-old woman living on the East Coast, and my live-in boyfriend of four years and I just got a new dog a couple of weeks ago. And as much as I kind of tend to laugh at people who uh, refer to their dogs as like their fur babies and to treat them as if they're actual offspring, I've absolutely fallen in love with this dog, and he's an absolute sweetheart, and I have this mama bear feeling of protection for him. But I've also noticed that I've been looking at my boyfriend a little bit differently because, you know, owning a living creature together and that creature's uh, life and well-being being charged, you know, with the two of us has made me really start to think about my partner as a potential father. And the thing that really concerns me is that, you know, he's still in that kind of young bachelor phase and he smokes a lot of pot and he kind of tends to be a little bit blasé about certain things. And he's generally very responsible. He has a good job, a great work ethic. Um, But he can be really like careless, lazy, clumsy, especially when he's been smoking. And our dog is small and likes to burrow under blankets in piles that just look like blankets. And my boyfriend has a tendency to jump onto 
furniture and, and beds and things without really thinking about it. And last night he almost jumped with his full weight onto our small dog and I had an absolute freak out and he wasn't hurt, but I imagined what could have happened if, you know, he hadn't been off by a few inches when he jumped. And it really worries me that now I'm worried about the literal physical safety and well-being of our, our little puppy together because of how weed affects my boyfriend's ability to, to be present and really think things through. But he also has chronic pain and anxiety that the weed really does make a significant difference for. And I'm just not sure how to approach the issue because I don't want to invalidate you know, his experience. And it's not like he's not aware of this or that he's okay with the idea of him accidentally hurting the dog. He was just as shaken last night as I was. But I don't know how to approach the idea of maybe phasing smoking out of our lives in a way that allows us to be more present and more cognizant while we're trying to take care of a living creature. You know, it has a lot to do with my idea of him as, as a father and as a responsible adult and really makes me think about whether or not I want to, you know, mate with him, partner with him for life, do all that stuff that I've been planning on the whole time now that I'm seeing him in this, this different light. And I'm also wondering if this is normal <laughs> as a pet parent that we start to judge our partners as actual parents when we see how they take care of pets. You can regard... The close call, your boyfriend almost jumping on the dog who had burrowed into the blankets, which I'm here from the future to tell you is not something human infants typically do, as disqualifying. He's demonstrated in that moment that he is not to be trusted around tiny little vulnerable life forms. Or you can regard it as a life lesson he learned on the way to parenting, that the dog was the practice run, the puppy was the practice run. And he knows now that hurling himself across the room onto a pile of blankets isn't something that he can safely do in your space anymore because there's this little life, little puppy life that's depending on you and depending on him not to be so cultish or oafish, whichever you prefer. I would err on that side. I would err on the latter that this is if you regard the puppy as a practice run for the human, a lesson learned and his eyes are open. Now keep an eye on him as to whether or not he does knock this shit off stops jumping on blankets, stops throwing himself across rooms. He might need to be reminded once or twice. If you see him throw himself across the room, might need to be reminded that he probably shouldn't do that anymore because puppy. But I think it would be unfair to say to someone who manages their chronic pain and anxiety with a little marijuana that they're going to have to give that up because something almost happened. Shit is almost happening all the time. There are people whose kids have been accidentally injured in their homes under their care who are stone cold fucking sober. Being not sober around small children is not something I recommend, but shit happens. Kids get hurt. Kids fall down. It's not always, God, I'm endorsing inebriated parenting. I don't mean to endorse inebriating parenting. I don't want to endorse associating causation always when there is sometimes just correlation. And again, I circle back or what keeps coming to my mind as I think about your question is how casually you toss off the fact that your boyfriend isn't just getting high to get high, not just because he's young and enjoys it, but because he has chronic pain and anxiety. He's treating chronic pain with a little marijuana. Would you rather he was on opioids? Would you rather he had an oxy prescription? That to me seems a lot riskier and more dangerous than pot. 
which provides a pleasurable sensation, also treats for many people effectively, more effectively than opioids with less risk of addiction, chronic pain. I think you guys can work this out. And I don't want you to take all of the negative messaging and stigma associated with illegal drugs, no longer illegal on the entire West Coast of the United States, recreational marijuana, now legal in Washington, Oregon, California. I don't want you to bring all of those negative bullshit, war on drugs, Nancy Reagan associations to this conflict. Assess it on its merits. He's responsible, shows up at work, does his job, enjoys a little pot at home, not just for the chronic pain, not just for the anxiety, but also for the pleasure of it. Needs now to be a little bit more thoughtful about how he moves through the world when he's had a little bit of pot. That is the conversation that you should have. Not you have to give up pot because one day I might want to have a baby and you almost hurt the dog. That's unreasonable. That's pot phobic. Hi, this is for the caller whose boyfriend recently became sober and I want to let her know it gets better. My husband was dealing with the same thing. He had to go to detox. I mean, it was a whole mess before detox. With his, I couldn't get his face out of my pussy. After detox, it was like a desert. I went so far mentally with it that I thought, oh my God, he was drunk and he didn't realize how ugly I was and now he just doesn't find me attractive. I mean, I went down that toxic little rabbit hole. I went to the doctor, talked to the doctor about it. And the fact of the matter is, is there's also brain chemistry there and hormonal imbalances that, that have to be righted. And sometimes that can't happen until, you know, three, four, five months after being sober. But do know that he's in a very critical time and his sobriety really does need to come first and he needs your support. And so that you don't neglect your own needs, I would say by a really, really good vibrator, love yourself love your boyfriend, have patience, definitely let him know how much you love it, how much you want him. But at the same time, you're not necessarily meaning to pressure him. And you certainly don't want him to disregard his sobriety. Hi, Dan. I wanted to ask you to remind all your listeners that Mother's Day is a perfectly wonderful time to donate to Planned Parenthood. We have the whole family doing this instead of sending flowers or silly gifts. It's a great time to be grateful that you were a wanted child or that you had a wanted child. Hi, this message is for the caller on episode 601 who was having an affair with the, her boss that has a pregnant wife. I was in a very similar situation when I was in college and I felt bad about it and thought that, you know, all the bad single things that happened to me while, you know, that other men did was karma and it wasn't. It's just that I thought that I didn't deserve better than what he was giving me. And eventually I learned that I deserve the standards that I expect, that I want in my future and currently have. And you can have it too. You just have to learn to hold men to those standards of what you want and how you want to be treated and how you want to be regarded. Okay. And don't settle for less. Yes, the sex might be good, but the sex is even better with somebody who truly loves you and wants to give you all the pleasure in the world and that you can trust so that you can be completely GGT about everything. I hope that helps. I know you're in a bad place, but it will get better. I promise. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. 
Denver Savage Love Live is coming to you on May 10th at the Oriental Theater. Join me, singer-songwriter Rachel Lark, and comedian Elise Kearns for what is going to be a very, very fun, hilarious, and filthy tweetful night. Again, May 10th, Oriental Theater, Denver. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets. Go to itmfa.org for all your impeach the motherfucker already swag. We have a line of ITMFA pride gear coming up soon at itmfa.org. You're going to want to get some for June. itmfa.org. Impeach the motherfucker already. Jesus Christ, what's it going to take? Maybe everyone wearing their ITMFA t-shirts. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Lori Brodo on Twitter at Dr. Lori Brodo. And follow Anthony Hecht on Twitter at A. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for another installment of Savage Love Cast. Thanks for